Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. These stories were recorded in front of a live audience on November 9th, 2019 at Provincetown Theater in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The theme was, should I stay or should I go? Let me introduce, first of all, my spectacular co-host and co-producer. Um, you've seen him before if you've been here before, but for those of you who haven't, he is um, a writer, a, a comedian, a performer. He's, he's written for the likes of Jane Lynch. Don't get too excited. Uh, and he's just a phenomenal guy. So let's have uh, William come to the stage and tell you a little bit about his experience. So I had, years ago, a 9-11 baby. So I don't know if you knew this phenomenon, but um, after 9-11, a lot of people are like, that could have been me. Oh my God, the end of times. What am I holding on? And they had families, they had children. There was, there, there was a little boom. And for me, I had always wanted to get a dog. And I was just like, no, the time's not right. But I was, 9-11 happened, and I was just like, I was working a couple of blocks from there. That could have been me. What am I doing? I should go get, I should get a dog. So I um, went onto like petfinder.com, and I went to these other rescue sites, and I started applying to adopt um, a dog. And I put all my information in there, and the same thing happened over and over again. They said, well, you're a single guy. You're, you have a job. You're going to be gone during the day. Who's going to, like, the dog's going to be alone all, all day. And then the phrase, we prefer to place our dogs with families. And I was thinking, I know. I was thinking, but the dog's going to be my family. So how do you start? <laughs> Is there a starter kit? So I was just like, well, I guess, you know, the time's not right. I put it out of my mind. And, and, and I, I, I went on with my life. And uh, one of my best friends at the time had a dog with his partner. And one weekend, I was walking with him and his dog to the dog run, running errands. And he had to go into a pet supply store for some dog food. And he goes, do, do you want to come in with me? I'm like, sure. So he's going looking for the dog food. And I'm just browsing the aisle when the owner of the pet supply store comes up to me and says, can I help you find some dog food? And I said, oh, I, I don't have a dog. I said, oh, I, I was looking to adopt a dog. But, and he, he looks at me and he says, we have a black lab puppy upstairs that needs to be adopted right now. And I'm like, I was like, what? He goes, yeah, he, he's upstairs. Someone just abandoned him yesterday. He's upstairs, and we need someone. I was like, and my friend rushed over and said, think about this really hard. Don't go up there, because if you see the puppy, you're going to go home with the puppy. Think about it. I said, you're right. I, I, need, I need to sleep on this. But I was like excited. I'm like, oh my God, this puppy just fell in my lap. And so I went home, and I had two roommates at the time. And um, they were pretty cool. One, she, she was not around a lot. She had a full-time job. The other was a complete freak show. Her and I think I've actually mentioned Denise in another story of mine somewhere along the line. But um, Denise was special. She um, was always wearing some sort of like kimono robe and high heels, and she never took the high heels off on this wood floor. And all the time, you'd hear like click, 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 click. Even in the middle of the night when she's going to the bathroom, I would be woken up by click, 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 click. And she had this annoying thing where she would always cough and say, excuse me, every minute of every day. She'd be like, ahem, excuse me. Even when she was by herself, she'd be like, ahem, excuse me. <laughs> and it drove me crazy. And then at the same time, around this time, she would lock herself in her room and she was trying to learn Arabic. And so you would hear the tapes, the like, bring home Arabic tapes behind the closed doors. And it'd be like, I don't know Arabic. It would be just like, Muhammad, blah, 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 blah. And she'd be like, Muhammad, excuse me, Muhammad, 
And I'm like, oh, God, I have to sell her on the prospect of, of getting a puppy in here. So I sat them down. I'm like, listen, I understand. If you don't want this, I'm bringing it. I, I want to bring, a, I want to adopt a dog. And they were all for it. They were like, yes, as long as, like, you can take care of it and stuff like that. I'm like, totally. I slept on it. And I was like, this is going to be meant to be. I'm going, I'm going to adopt this dog. So I go back the next day. And of course, you know, you see a puppy. The puppy's all over you, kissing you. And it was the big paw stumbling across. It's a black lab puppy, three months old, so adorable, full of energy. And so while he's on top of me and stuff like that, the owner was thinking I was having doubts and even said, if you take this dog today, we'll give you a collar, a leash, a bed, dog food. I was like, this is a bargain. There's not even an adoption fee. I'm sold. Like, let's do it. So I bring the dog home, and I'm thinking, I haven't researched anything about owning a dog, let alone a three-month-old puppy. So I got the puppy in there. He's exploring the apartment. And I'm at the computer at, on, on user chat groups. Like, I just got a puppy. What do I do? I'm just, like, waiting for the answer. And, and when that happens, I hear Denise in the living room scream and go, and shut her door, and I run to the living room, and there's the puppy squatting, taking a big crap. And Denise is traumatized by this. So then I go and I pick up my first poo ever, and I don't know what to do with it. It's inside my house. I'm like, do I put it in the toilet? Do I put it in the garbage? Not the garbage. I'm going to put it in the toilet. So I go to the bathroom. Denise opens her door, and she's like, not in the toilet. There's worms. I'm going to get worms. I'm like, this is not starting off well. Put it away. So I, I go, and I'm reading up on, on things. It's a little chaotic. And everyone on the chat group's telling me, you have to create the dog. Create the dog. It's not. And so I, they gave me, the pet supply store gave me wee wee pads, and I placed them everywhere. You got to get a crate. I'm like, okay. So I went, and I got a crate, and I brought the crate back. And the first night was, was great because we were both exhausted. The dog and I were just like uh, completely passed out. But then, the, then the, the second night, I got the crate, and they're like, yeah, at night, the dog should learn to go into the crate. And so I'm like, okay, great. So um, I lured the puppy into the crate, and the puppy's just barking, 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 and giving me this look like, I know you, you humans call this a crate, but you've put me into a cage. This is a cage, and I'm not liking this. And barking, barking. But then the user group was just like, oh, you have to fill a Coke can with pennies and shake it every time the dog barks. So the dog thinks... The barks are causing the shaking, and he'll, he'll stop barking. I'm like, great. So I did that. And the, that first night, or that, technically the second night, the dog's just barking, barking. And I'm, and I'm so, oh, over here in bed, like, <laughs> and my, both my roommates come knocking and go, what is that sound? I'm like, I'm sorry, the dog's barking. They're like, no, that's fine. What is this other, what's that Coke can? I'm like, this, the user group told me to do this. So I'm exhausted. I got no sleep for the next week. The dog was peeing not on the wee-wee pads. Every time, it's, it's like rinse and repeat. The dog would go in the living room, squat, take a poo. Denise would be like, ah, click, click, click. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then it's like, and there was this chaos. I was just, I was like, oh, my God. If I don't do something, this 9-11 dog's going to kill me. So I was like, I, 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 I have to get rid of this dog. I said, I can't do it. I'm going to die. I've not talked to anyone. I have no social life anymore. I can't sleep. This is ridiculous. So I did hire a dog walker to come in during the day because the dog needs to be let out of the crate cage. So um, I called the dog walker, and I said, listen, um, I, I need to get rid of this dog. I, I need to rehome this puppy. And he's like, why? And I was like, oh, God, I feel so bad. So I had a lie. <laughs> and I was like, my job is transferring me overseas, which was a complete lie, because I think I was waiting on tables at the time. <laughs> it's like TGI Fridays is not like, we're relocating you to the Dubai airport branch. Like, no, no one does that. So 
And he was like, oh, I'm really sorry, man. Um, I'll try my best. And I put the, the, the 411 out to my friends. I'm like, I feel bad, but I, I can't right now. Like, this dog's killing me. And they're like, we understand. We'll spread the word. Uh, we, I don't hear back from anyone. No one wants to take this dog. So I just struggle through and struggle through, and we do slowly get into a routine. Um, but the dog still refuses to do his business outside. And I'm on the user group again. User group, tell me, because you were so successful with that Coke can. <laughs> what do I do now? And they're like, well, what do you do? Like, what, do you, what are the rewards? And I'm like, well, I have this, his treats, like biscuits. And they're like, not good enough. Go to, a, go to a gourmet cheese shop and get the best cheese, cut it up into little cubes and bring it with you. I'm like, Oh my God. So I went to like Murray's cheese shop in New York and I'm like, la 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 la. And I, I picked this like really precious like cheddar, expensive cheddar, chopped into little cubes, brought it out. And, um, and one night I'm out there and uh, he's like kind of like between two cars in the curb and he squats and takes a poo. And I am ecstatic. I'm jumping around like, oh, you good boy. You're such a good boy. You're going to get a cheese cube. Yes, you are. Oh, daddy is very, 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 very happy. You're going to get a cheese cube. And I'm dancing around. At the same time, this homeless woman is waddling up the street and witnesses this whole thing. She looks at me and these antics. And she's, I'm not kidding you. She goes, crazy cracker. And she continues. And, and I'm still doing the dance. I feed, I feed him the cheese cubes. And, um, and I'm like, well, I'm going to keep him outside because maybe he'll do a, a wee, too. And so I'm, and we walk for about like 10 to 15 minutes more. And, um, and, and I see him stop. And I'm like, oh, my God, he's stopping. He's, he's looking at the curb. He's going to wee. And it's between two cars. And I'm like, what? Why isn't he going? And I'm like, what is he looking at? And I look between two cars, and it's the same homeless woman squatting, taking a crap. She looks at me and says, do I get a cheese cube? <laughs> I take off, man, run down the sidewalk, bursting out laughing. And at the same time, my phone rings. And it's my dog walker, weeks later, is like, hey, man, um, are you still trying to get rid of that puppy? Because I think I have someone. And I look at the dog. I'm getting all emotional, but he sits because I have the freaking cheese cubes. And he's like, waiting for the gourmet Murray's cheese cube. And I'm like, no, I'm good. He's staying. So he stayed. <laughs> Yay. And he... I did, I did name him, by the way. I did name him. His name was Guffman, and he lived 14 years. And he loved cheese for the rest of his life. All right. You guys ready for our first storyteller? Awesome. Put your hands together for Boris Moe. Boris Moe, come to the stage. Hello, all you beautiful people. So mine's not going to be nearly as funny, I don't think. But it is important that I tell it for me. When I was 13, I had always been the victim of bullying my entire childhood. And at 15, I had a hunch. But at 15, I knew. And bullying never got better for me throughout high school. And even though I was in theater, I still, I still kind of felt rejected from everybody. And so what I did was I built myself a little box, a little, a little room, if you would. I could look out, but no one could look in. And I placed that box inside of a closet of my own creation. And I locked the door, threw away the key, and didn't really look back. For almost 10 years, I watched everyone around me.
but no one could really see me. And eventually that one-way mirror that was the walls, slowly those mirrors faded. And I couldn't really see me. I stayed there for 10 years. That's not healthy at all for anyone. I stayed there because organizations that I was part of wouldn't want me. I was afraid I would be rejected even worse than I already was. And then this year happened, and I finally decided to do something about it because I was sick and tired of being alone, of being inside of that box that I created for myself, hiding from everyone, hiding from me. Because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. It only matters what you think. So I stayed inside of a box for those 10 years. And like I said, it isn't healthy. About a month ago, how many people have ever gone out to a lingerie shop or a costume shop and found one of them sexy sailor costumes or something similar? Yeah, you all know what I'm talking about. Ones with the super, super short skirts and, well, even for me there, I was kind of popping out of the top. This was right before Halloween. So was that, like a month ago? That was when I broke down the door and the walls. And I saw me for the first time in 10 years. And I'm a fucking queen. I left that closet and I haven't looked back since. And it's a beautiful, beautiful world. So I left, I never looked back. I was in Boston that night, that was a fun night. I never got his name though, so that kind of sucked. But he was the one that held the dynamite and he was the one that blew up all the walls. He was the one that released me. And Banana Republic, they dressed me. That's why I look fabulous. Well, that in the gym and hot yoga. If you haven't ever been to hot yoga, you should go. Because I went, and I'm going to go back. Because that's fantastic. You'll sweat a lot. You'll sweat really a lot. But here I am, and I'm here to fucking stay. We are going to now welcome to the stage David W. David. Okay, so should I stay or should I go? The, the story that uh, occurred to me was we've all been 17, um, and I was in high school, and I was dating a woman named Brandy Beecher. And the deal I had with my parents was that if I was going to be, it was very reasonable, if I was going to be home after midnight, I had to call. Seemed like a, a fair deal. I had been pursuing Brandy very aggressively for months and gotten nowhere. This particular evening, Brandy was in a different mood. <laughs> so there I was with Brandy alone, pursuing my desires. And I happened to glance at my watch. Brandy didn't see me look at it, but I did. And it was like 12.05. And my decision was, do I stay or do I go? <laughs> and I knew that all I had to do was break off for a moment to call my parents. But I think everybody's been in the situation was, it just wasn't a good time to break off. So I didn't. So then I'm driving home, maybe at 1.30. And I thought, 
or perhaps my parents had fallen asleep. <laughs> and I pull into my driveway, and my parents' bedroom was overlooking the driveway, and the lights are on. <laughs> I'm a desperate man at this point, and I was trying to formulate some type of excuse or, or, or something, that, a story that would make some sense. So I go in the house, I go up, and I hear my father say, David, we've all been there. And so I go in there, and there they are sitting up in bed. And they said, it's 1.30, where have you been? I said, you know what? This is not a good time to discuss this. <laughs> We're all tired. We're not at our best, and I think we should go to sleep, and then in the morning, we'll talk about it. So the two of them look at each other, because this was an un they weren't expecting this particular response. So they said, okay. So I, I close the door, I go. I said, okay. I go to bed, I wake up in the morning, and I said, look. I was wrong. I should have called. I said, so if the object of punishing me is going to, to make change my behavior, I'm already there. I said, we've achieved this. We're in better shape. We are going to move forward in a better way, and we are going to have a much more successful relationship, and this is going to be great. So that I just see my parents looking at me like, who is this guy? You know what I mean? You know? So they say, well, this will never happen again. I said, never. Never. Guaranteed. So they go, okay. Later that day, my father says to me, where were you? I said, you know Brandy Beecher? He goes, yeah. I said, it was the night. So he goes, okay. <laughs> and that was my deal. All right, thank you very much. Please put your hands together right now for Tom Marquis. Uh, uh, I have this photograph taken outside my childhood home in rural Maine, and in the image is a is of the big tree outside the house, and hanging from the tree are three deer that my dad had shot. Uh, I first see this image when I'm about six years old. And for a long time, I believed he shot all three deer with one bullet because that's how great of a hunter he was. Um, it was uh, common during hunting season as I grew up to see deer tied to the hood of his truck or laying in the back and also hanging in the garage because uh, he would skin, gut, and uh, butcher the, uh, the, the dead deer himself or with friends or family. And one particular night when I was around eight years old, he came home from a hunt. He had uh, shot a deer and had to get his truck to go get it. I uh, tagged along with him. And we drove down the country road behind the house onto a dirt road and then soon into a field. And as I'm you know, following the beam from the headlights, we come across the deer and it's a doe. I know it's a doe because standing above it is its fawn as it sniffs its mother for the last time before seeing us and running into the woods. So needless to stay, say, I'm hysterical. I'm yelling at my dad. He has to go in the woods and find that baby deer so I can take it home to, to raise it, or it's going to die alone in the woods. And um, I also accuse him of killing Bambi's mom. So you know, needless to say, I'm having mixed feelings about deer hunting. But as I get older, I realize it is important to my dad, him being 13 of 13 kids, uh, it was a way for him to provide for his family. And I also came to realize me being his only child, his only son, and a third of my life I was raised as little Tom and he was big Tom, that uh, I realized I would be expected to deer hunt one day. That uh, time came around when I was 14 and it was time to uh, learn to shoot a rifle and then I'd have to get my deer hunting license. Uh, shooting a rifle was exciting. I um, that I didn't mind, <laughs> you know, shooting a target. It was uh, uh, exciting. And then came the time for the deer hunting license. I went along with it. Um, 
It's what my father wanted. And so the, there's two tasks with the deer hunting license at a shooting range. First, it was shooting a target from 50 yards away like we had done. But they had us lying on the ground, which I've never shot that way. Already having my doubts about this. And uh, sure enough, you know, we get about five shots. Uh, the instructor brings up the target. And I definitely didn't get the bullseye. And I think I managed to hit the edge of the, the paper a couple times with the bullets. Uh, barely getting the target at all. Uh, I definitely hear a sigh from my dad, and I just know this is going to be horrible, and I'll probably fail. <laughs> the next task is to skeet shoot. That is shooting clay discs in the air. Uh, this we never practice. This is for duck hunting, which my father did not do. So I already feel like I'm going to totally fail at this. So, they, so you get th three tries. The first one, they shoot it. I aim, shoot, miss it, of course. And I'm thinking, here we go. So they set up the second one. I aim. You know, they fly in the air, I shoot, and I hit it. I actually hit the disc, it explodes. All these clay pieces, you know, fall to the ground. It was awesome. I'm, I'm shocked and excited. My dad looks shocked and excited. Third one I missed, I don't care, I got one. I didn't completely fail. Uh, obviously didn't think this through, because of course I get my hunting license, so now deer hunting will be coming up soon after this, which it does. Uh, the first time, it's early in the morning at dawn. Uh, it's, you know, cold out put on all this gear, we set up our rifles outside and walk into the woods. Woods I grew up playing in, but we go further and deeper into the woods than I have ever been. And you kind of find a spot between two trees. We just crouch down on the cold ground, and when you have to sit there, silent, which feels like forever. Um, you know, barely an hour goes by. It feels like eternity to me. I'm just tired, cold, very bored hungry, and all I can keep thinking about is the Snickers bar I knew my dad put in his jacket pocket. But uh, it will make noise to open it, so we're not having it right now. Uh, anyway, and uh, so, you know, this goes on maybe just a few hours. We walk through the woods, you know, don't see anything. It's not happening. N done the first time. A week later, the second attempt, we set up on a crunchy road to walk into the woods from a different spot. We set up our rifles, and I accidentally shoot mine off, uh, you know, facing trees. But there could be other hunters. It's not great. And of course, I just say, oh, I shot a tree. Maybe I'll take the branch home and mount that on the wall. Uh, <laughs> my dad's pissed. He takes hunting and hunting safety very seriously. But we still go into the woods. Uh, it's becoming obvious to me I'm not cut out to be a deer hunter. I'm still not sure how he feels about it. Uh, we walk, you know, go through the woods, and even he feels like it's not happening after a short time. And we're done. So. You know, I realize, you know, I'm really torn. Like, I want, I obviously don't want to hunt. I know it's important to my father. I gotta, but I got to figure a way to get out of this. And, you know, I'm contemplating just going with them with binoculars or camera. But, you know, they'll, they'll make noise. And the whole thing is I don't want to be in the woods at dawn walking through the woods. So, and around this time, too, I'm getting letters from Greenpeace and their stickers. And I'm trying to save dolphins from tuna. Uh, from tuna ships, and so then, you know, I'm contemplating how I can get out of this, and it would entail giving up something, but it's worth it in order to never to have to go hunting again. So I just have to wait for the next time for my dad to ask when we're going hunting. So sure enough, a week or two later, he asks, and I have to look him straight in the eye and say, sorry, Dad, I can no longer go hunting with you because I've become a vegetarian. Okay, let's welcome to the stage, Pat Medina. Woo! You know, most of you know, I grew up in Brooklyn. And my grandparents, eventually, they wanted, you know, some country life. So they bought a house in um, eastern Pennsylvania. And for my dad, that was excellent, because he did everything all the time to get his kids out of the perils of growing up in the city. So every weekend we went to Grandma and Grandpa's house in eastern Pennsylvania. They lived on Lehigh Drive. So it was the Lehigh Valley area, and they lived on Lehigh Drive, 1073 Lehigh Drive. I had to know it in case I ever got lost. And we were right across the road from the river, the Lehigh River. If we were any closer, the house would have been in the river, which every now and then it would flood, and the house was in the river. <laughs> but 
a couple of other people from the family bought houses also in the Lehigh Valley, though they weren't across from the river. So I had the, the pleasure of having cousins and my sister and my other sibling that was born at the time all gathered together on this beautiful spring day and the cousins were gonna go on an adventure. Now, when I was growing up, I pretty much saw myself kind of as a combination, Amelia Earhart, Annie Oakley, Huckleberry Finn, and sometimes when things didn't go too great, Wile E. Coyote. <laughs> so I decided unanimously for everyone that we were going on a walk and we were gonna have like a little adventure together, all the cousins. Now you gotta understand, the cousins, we had like sibling clusters. So we had um, Eddie, Freddie, and Bundy. And then we had Chuko and Tito, don't ask. It's another story for down the road sometime. And then we had Gloria, Patty, and Nikki. And Nikki was like six years or seven years younger than me. So we're going on this walk and we decided, I decided that we were going down Lehigh Drive toward the steel foundry, which was way down, several miles down. Um, and we were never allowed to go into the river, of course, because the currents were tremendous. So we're walking on the river bank side. And as we're walking, we can see these gouges that were taken out over the course of the winter from the side of the river. It was from the tides coming up and the river getting high and the current ripping these tree trunks and the roots and everything and taking them down the river. So we weren't allowed to go down there, bummer. We thought like the only joy for the walk was gonna be that we got to curse out loud, <laughs> not being around our parents. So this was cool, this was cool enough. So, you know, we, we kind of used the practice like interjecting shit or heck or hell into parts of our sentences. And this was okay, but it was getting kind of boring and we were coming to a crossroad and there in the clearing on the riverbank side of the road, was the metal monster. The metal monster was a backhoe. Okay, so this was something unusual for us. And of course, it was adding to the excitement of the day because it's as if someone sounded the bugle for like the advance attack onto this backhoe. All of a sudden, all these cousins were like running and screaming and jumping up on the backhoe and Tell you the truth, I was not so excited because I thought that any kind of big metal monster like that had like really sinister ideas and I had an overactive imagination. I was like, uh-uh, I'll stay here with Nikki. So they all jumped on the backhoe and within a matter of moments, they're pulling levers. I had two cousins inside, they're pulling levers and everything and then it happened. <laughs> A big billow of smoke came out of its tubular lung. And the thing started with a big <laughs> It was one of those big ones, you know, with the big metal treads for a, a, like a tank. It was like a tank. It was an ugly, ugly beast of a metal monster. And I stood there petrified, and I knew that life was now going to be in slow motion. <laughs> So they were trying to scramble. Everybody was like, oh! They were trying to scramble and find which lever they had pulled that started this beast. But instead of shutting it off, it turned the whole cabin around. And now the arm was extending over the river with the bucket like this. They started jumping off. And now it's all in slow motion. This is slow motion panic. And so they're jumping off like somebody sounded the retreat bugle. They all get off of this monster. We're standing on the roadside, amazed, our mouths open, horrified. I was kind of amused, actually. The monster was eating its way through the dirt with the treads. All of a sudden, the riverbank gave way and the monster started sliding and chewing the ground beneath it, and the arm was hanging over the surface of the water. 
there was a collective, oh, shit. <laughs> that mighty mechanical metal monster of sinister intent broke the surface of the water and was now churning the bottom of the river with the arm still dangling up on top. At this point, we all kind of looked at each other, thinking the same thing. Do we stay or do we go? There was a collective silence and a collective decision. We ran like bastards. We had Chuko and Dito running up the mountain toward their parents' house. Then we had Eddie, Freddie, and Bundy running down the side road because my aunt lived down there, and the three of us, Gloria, Patty, and Nikki, <laughs> tearing ass down Lehigh Drive all the way along the, the other side. We wouldn't even go next to the riverbank because that's where that monster was still churning. Oh, no. We get in the house. We run up the stairs. They yell at us, what are you kids doing? Oh, we're just playing, we're going to the attic. We get up there, it's like, holy shit. <laughs> Couple of minutes later, the door slams open downstairs and the booming of my father, he had already heard the news and the police were on their way and he yells upstairs, girls, get down here. So we go down like little soldiers and we sit down on the little couch and my brother's there too. I don't know why because he was just crying. And, <laughs> and we get our, our interrogation from him which was also like should we stay or should we go it was not a choice. He interrogates us. He finds out we were not actually in the cabin. So he feels like, oh, that's good. But the, the police are coming. Next thing, the phone rings. No, the police are not coming. My cousins took the rap for it. Their father is going to pay through the nose. Because now they have three tow trucks and two more sinister monsters trying to get this thing out of the river. A week later, because we must have been like on Easter break or something, the newspaper hits the table. It's the Eastern Express, not even the Lehigh Valley Chronicle, the Eastern Express, the big city newspaper, and it says in bold print, the Medinas drown the backhoe. <laughs> We had done it. I still, I'm thinking it's really cool. This is like one of my great adventures and escapades. And we had the punishments from hell for up until two years ago, actually. Anything <laughs> that was being denied me or anything that I couldn't do, it's like, yeah, well, you remember the backhoe. <laughs> That's it. Uh, Carol Bergen! Carol! Yeah! Get up here and conquer me. Um, so, I made some big life changes about three years ago. And I, um, last December, I, a lot of details were tied up and loose ends and things. And I started to feel like I could start to breathe. And so, the little breaths at first, and then larger, and then gasps, and like I'd never had air before in my life, I started to come to life. And um, at the same time at work, I was, became friendly with a woman who was terminally ill. And we became great friends and I enjoyed every day having conversations with her. And I told her that I wanted to do something for myself, like a reward for surviving and, and you know, and, um, and I said, you know, the Red Sox are going to play the uh, Yankees in London and I really wanted to go. And um, she said, well, why don't you do it? And I said, oh, yeah, sure. And, you know, walked away and went about my business. And she kept prompting me for a couple of weeks and calling me on the phone saying, so have you booked a trip yet? And I was like, geez, I, you know, I made every excuse. And finally she said, um, you know, we don't always get second chances. And I know this. So if you want to do this, go ahead and do it. And that really hit me. And um, so I said, sure. And I, I went ahead and did it. I made a plan. And um, I invited a friend of mine who 
I'd known since I was 10 years old. We um, played trumpet in the band together and we've been lifelong friends. So we make this, this plan and um, as the time gets closer, my friend at work got very ill and had to retire. So before I went on the trip, I went to visit her. And um, she was near the end of her life and she couldn't open her eyes. And, but she said my name and she smiled and she listened to me as I told her I was going on the trip and thanked her for you know, prodding me to do it. And I, I said goodbye. And um, so June 26 came and my friend and I you know, went to go on our trip and of course it didn't go as planned. And um, so we were in Boston at the airport and you know, we sign up for those notifications with the airline and all that and start getting these texts that your flight's delayed and, you know, it's, it's delayed again and, and the toilet's broken and... Hi. Oh, there we go. <clears throat> so, um, you know, we had a connection to make in Toronto to get to London, so we're getting a little nervous and, you know, as I said, ex-Governor William Weld came off the plane and we're getting more texts that it's delayed. And so finally the plane's going to leave, but by now it's so late, I th I'm thinking we're going to miss the connection. So when we get on the plane, we tell the flight attendant about this. And she said, oh, well, there's 10 of you on the, on the flight, so they're going to hold the plane for you. We're like, great. And we get there in Toronto, and the guy at the gate says, oh, no, they didn't hold the plane. And here's a phone number, and there's the phone banks, and the airport's closed, and there's people sleeping on the ground. And my traveling friend is getting really grumpy and grouchy and militaristic, and I'm getting noncompliant. And... <laughs> I'm on the phone and trying to make do things and, and um, you know, so we finally get, you know, we're there half the night and, and we had to come back in the morning and we get an arrangement for a flight that, that day later. And um, so we're kind of like a unit because, you know, all our luggage was on this thing and we had to stick together and she's a smoker. So we kept going up and down the airport. It was really big if you've been to Toronto and to go outside to have a cigarette like every half hour. We're marching, we're going back and forth and she's, you know, bing, 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 and I'm like, oh, my God. And, um, you know, we're getting all these alerts, and things are still delayed. And, and so I look at my, my iPhone, my health app at one point. It says, you've walked seven miles. And I'm like, <laughs> at least I got my steps in, and, you know. So we, um, finally, the plane's delayed again, and we're going to, you know, we're going to go to, um, to Ottawa. That We had to go to Ottawa before London. So it's delayed. We get to Ottawa. We miss the connection to London. So we've got another night, same sort of situation. We're going up and down the airport, and we're there most of the day. And, and, and um, you know, my friend, we're, we're, you know, it's sort of disintegrating our, our relationship um, <laughs> a little bit. Um, but um, cause, because we, we have coping mechanisms and reactions that are, are very different. And um, so, um, you know, we do manage to get through this, and we do get to London for 18 hours. And with a lot of strong coffee, I did see the ball game. And um, I do still love my dear friend, but I'll never travel with her again. Um, and then when we, when we got back to Boston, I did find that my uh, coworker had died. And so um, it struck me that while we were having this discomfort of 48 hours stuck in the airport and this limbo, that she was at the very same time in limbo and, and passing. And, you know, we were staying and she was going. And um, I felt this connection and um, grateful. And I kind of smiled saying that, you know, at least I got the game in and, and because of her. <laughs> so. Put your hands together. Coming to the stage right now is Gary Flo. Come to the stage, Gary. I didn't practice this. I just decided because I had a real life, uh, life or death. Should I stay or should I go? I used to uh, be a hippie uh, a war protester, and I would go to the nuclear test site out in Nevada every year and uh, protest nuclear weapons testing with uh, a bunch of uh, Earth First people and, and other hippies. But it's amazing, I have this kind of Forrest Gump life where I meet these famous people randomly. So for example, I'm walking across the cattle guard into the, uh, it's in a place called Mercury, it's a nuclear test site where they, where they blow up nuclear bombs and it says on the sign, uh, no weapons allowed uh, in the, in the, <laughs> on the fence. And, uh, so I'm walking across, and Martin Sheehan is right next to me, who's a, a Catholic worker, um, 
war protester. And the, the master of ceremonies for the whole event is Casey Kasem, believe it or not. <laughs> I'm not kidding. This, this blows your mind, you know? So after, um, you know, getting arrested and then driving us three hours and putting us in cages and putting tie wraps on our wrists and wearing gloves to harass us and trying to provoke us into becoming violent so we'll do something stupid. They drive us three hours away and, um, just to harass us and we go into this little town where these rednecks look at us and <clears throat> say, you know, like they want us to get out of here and the bartender says, get the fuck out of here. These guys are giving us good money. So he threw out the rednecks and all the hippies <laughs> took over the town. But the next day we would always go uh, to this place over the border in Arizona called Arizona Hot Springs. And it was like a two or three mile hike up into this canyon and these beautiful hot springs. And it's, it's super hot and it flows into the Colorado River. And it's super hot there. And, you know, you just take all your clothes off, you know, because you're with a bunch of, you know, hippies anyway. So, um, so but then it, the sun goes down and it gets really cold. And um, we have to sleep, and we don't have any blankets or tents or sleeping bags, so, so we all have to spoon each other. I'm with these Earth, Earth First people, and I'm spooning with this lesbian woman, and I'm kind of worried that I'm going to get aroused, but, I just, but it's, it's actually too cold anyway, so I don't, don't have to worry. So I'm okay for that night. And there's like about 10 of us just all spooned, because it's so damn cold, you know? And then the next day, everybody leaves, and I decide I'm going to stay another day. And um, I end up with this one guy, and uh, he turns out to be a deranged Vietnam veteran. And, um, you know, it's get, I didn't realize this till it was getting late, and it was kind of getting dark, and it was like a three-mile hike out, and, you know... He had his enormous penis. It was kind of scary. But what was, what was really scary was that he had a handgun. It was either a 38 or a 44. I don't know what. And I'm like, should I stay or should I go? I don't know. It was like a three-mile hike out in the dark or stay and talk to this guy. He was suicidal and didn't know what he wanted to do, and I, so I have this conversation with him. I decide I'm gonna stay and take the chance. Maybe he just needs someone to talk to. And um, he's trying to decide, like, is he gonna kill himself, you know? Or I'm thinking, is he gonna kill me? And uh, he just is totally distraught about the Vietnam War. He was a Vietnam vet. He, you know, he realized that he'd been totally used and abused, and he was really angry, and he wanted to figure out something to do with his life. And I said, well, well, why don't you um, join uh, Vietnam Veterans Against the War? And he goes, wow, that is a brilliant idea. That's exactly what I'm going to do. This is meant to be. This is why I came here, to meet you, so I could you know, spend the rest of my life doing that. So thank you so much. Um, let's welcome to the stage Beth Goldstein. So hi, everybody. Wow, it's really like so bright. It's very intense. I feel like I'm um, So, you know, originally when I thought of should I come or should I go or whatever, should I stay, leave, I'm thinking relationship. That's what everybody would do, right? Everybody's going to do a relationship. And of course, that went through my mind. And then I remembered a friend of mine who's a psychotherapist saying, no one ever came to my office and said, I left at the exact right time. <laughs> So then I was like, okay, let me think of something else. What's gonna, what about staying and going? And I was reminded of, it's not that funny really, but back in about 30 years ago, I had a really serious head injury. And during that period, I was really like, my friends called me numbskull, which isn't really that funny, but it was sort of the truth. I, I, I couldn't think straight, I couldn't, get word retrieval, it was sort of like being really aphasic and almost like having a stroke, right? So I would be walking as fast as I could, thinking I was walking really fast, and then I'd go to the beach and people were walking next to me and they're like, <laughs> you know, they're just walking normally. And then I realized like I'm just like in slow motion and not a lot is going on in my head at, during the day. But at night, I was having like 
all these vivid dreams and sort of nightmares and seeing all these colors and seeing, and all these people were coming in and out. And it was sort of intense. And then, you know, during this whole period, because I was sort of out of it, I was also having sort of this spiritual crisis or a spiritual awakening, really, getting hit over the head and opening in a whole different way. Like my, I teach yoga, right? My crown chakra was like, boom. And um, I was having this experience where I was being like vacuumed out of my body, but I was like asleep and I'd see myself hovering over my body. This is like, should I stay or should I go, right? And but my body felt like, you know how when you were a kid and someone else would hold your fingers and then you'd go numb and your whole hand would go numb? So, you know, my whole body was going numb, but it was tingling all over. And I, my body was tingling, but I was like hovering. And this kept happening. It's like every couple of weeks I'd start getting vacuumed out of my body and I'd hover and I'd get really, really scared and then I'd like get vacuumed back in. You know, and sometimes I'd make it to maybe five feet, and sometimes I'd make it to the door. But I was always so afraid that I'd go, then I'd go back in. But one night, I started getting pulled out of my body. And I was like, afraid, 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 afraid. And then, zoom, like I was just out. And I went up to the ceiling, and then I flew. <laughs> I can't believe I'm telling you this story. <laughs> I usually wait till I've known you for a little longer. <laughs> they don't think I'm a complete lunatic went up and sold a story at the Mosquito. So I got pulled out of my body and I went through the window. And like, because I wasn't really in my physical body, I was in like spirit body. And I flew through the window and I started flying around and it was very dark and there were all, it, I did have somebody with me. I have no idea. I don't know who it was. It was like 30 years ago. But there was this other being with me, and it was like, I think, it was like being dead, right? Like, I really feel like this is what happens when you die. And I was, and I could see other beings, and I was floating around, and I felt very peaceful and very sort of open. And then all of a sudden, I was like vacuumed back, and then I'm back in my body. And I'm still here. So I stayed. your hands together right now for Wes Enos coming to the stage. Hi, my name is Wes Enos. Uh, five years ago, I started a nonprofit while working in a restaurant in New York City uh, called The Generations Project, and we preserve LGBTQ history through intergenerational storytelling. And... <laughs> People, people often ask uh, why I started something like the Generations Project, and it's because of my relationship with history and how history has always been a part of my life. Uh, so I grew up in a very small town in Oregon, on the Oregon coast, uh, about seven hours south of Portland and seven hours north of San Francisco, so really in the middle of nowhere, where there's uh, 100 miles of forest uh, surrounding my hometown. And the closest town away is 27 miles and only has 3,000 people in, living in it. And my hometown has 6,000 people living in it. So as a closeted gay boy, it was very intimidating to grow up in this little town. And I'm the youngest of six kids. Um, both of my parents were coaches and teachers in my community. And uh, my dad taught history. So, uh, and after school, I would always go to my dad's history class and watch um, students in his class and, and talk to them. And then I'd go to the, the sports practices and, and hang out until the practices were over. Um, and it, uh, so my entire upbringing was really being surrounded by a lot of these older people in my community who were mentored by my parents. And people would always tell me about my dad's history class and how much they, that, um, how much they loved it. Even the worst of students would tell me how much they loved this history class. My dad found a way to make history come to life. And he taught every 10th grader history through 
my community for over a decade. And I was this closeted queer kid, and, and both, all my siblings were really great athletes, the best at basketball or football or baseball, and I was like not really good at anything, except for school. I was really a good student, and I uh, was great at most subjects, but I loved history because my dad was like a walking encyclopedia and remembered everything about history. And um, so that's how I shaped my life, while my siblings were like in the front pages of, or have their pictures featured in the newspaper, I was like 4.0 in the, uh, in the honor roll. That was like how my name would be in the paper. <clears throat> and by the time I got to high school, um, I was in my 10th grade year, and um, my dad actually passed away the, within months of me starting 10th grade. And I was sitting in his history class, the same history class that he had taught, and there would be these substitute teachers who would come in and say, they do the roll call, and they say, Wes, Enos, huh, Enos, that name sounds familiar. And I'd have to explain to them that they were teaching the curriculum that my dad was, had left for them, and, <clears throat> and, um, and that I, this was his classroom, and I was sitting in it, and it, it was really awkward. And I literally just grew to hate history. I didn't want anything to do with it. And for the rest of high school, I just did whatever I could to get through. And I had my mindset that I would do everything I can to get out because I was this closeted queer kid. And this family that was pretty well known um, had this big family. And uh, by the time I reached the end of my high school years. I was, had all my intentions to move to San Francisco. And that was my golden ticket to leave my hometown. And it was also the start of my coming out to everyone. Hey, I'm moving to San Francisco. It's, that's the only place I knew where gay people existed at that time in 2005. So it was before social media. Um, so. After high school, I came out to my friends and family, moved to San Francisco, and within a year, I was living and working in the Castro, living the dream I'd always wanted. And I'd go out with friends, and I'd go get drinks, and I'd go dancing, and I would wake up in the morning and go get breakfast with large groups of friends. I was living the life that I never thought I could. And it was wonderful. And I was working at a restaurant in the Castro district called um, Home Restaurant, and I was a waiter working my way through college, and I said something to one of my coworkers um, about this table I was waiting on, and it was this sort of bitter older man, and I told one of my coworkers, no matter what I do with my life, I don't want to be like one of these older gay men who eats breakfast alone every day. And one of my coworkers overheard this and said, are you talking about that man there who used to have friends just like you do and used to go out dancing just like you do and go get breakfast with large groups of friends just like you do today? And he said, that older man used to have um, slowly lost each of his friends one by one throughout the 90s and early 2000s. Um, and now it's just him eating breakfast there alone every day. And I had never heard anything like this. Um, well, I had, but I had never really heard it. And it, it hit me hard. And while I was studying at San Francisco State University, I was looking to change my major. And I started looking through all the different degrees uh, or majors I could pursue, and I decided to change my degree to history. And despite being in San Francisco, um, my college did not have any LGBT history courses. So I wanted to do, um, so I, I learned I had to look, pursue history through on my own means. And I eventually got my degree. And after college, I found myself living in New York City. And about 
a year or two after living in New York, I was 25 years old or so, and I was at a party in Hell's Kitchen, and these group of 21-year-olds were talking about where they're going to go that evening, and I like started listening in, and one of them said, I don't want to go to that gay bar, it's all older gay men. And then another one said, gay men over the age of 40 shouldn't be allowed in gay bars. <laughs> and then I saw myself in these kids. Um, and I said something, and I said, do you know how grateful we should be for the, the, the generation that came before us? And, and we should celebrate all the different ages in a bar. Uh, and these, whatever I said, I don't know if it, it sit with them. Just like the person who told me, my coworker who told me when I was 21 years old about the older gay men eating alone. And I decided, or um, a few, let's see, a few years later, um, I was waiting tables again in Brooklyn Heights. And Brooklyn Heights has a historic community of gay people and a lot of gay couples still live there. And I told, uh, I was talking to one of my coworkers, and I was, my shift was coming to an end, and one of my favorite couples were sitting in my section, but I was ready, my, it was being cut early, and I was getting ready to go. And she told me, like, they're celebrating the death of one of their friends. And I thought to myself, should I stay or should I go? And I thought about how the, gener the younger 21-year-olds in Hell's Kitchen and what they said about older gay people, and I told myself, in the age of Obama in 2015, do I want my generation to be known as a generation that forgets this history, or do I want my generation to be known for remembering it? So I went and said hello. <laughs> Let's please welcome to the stage our friend, Michelle. Michelle. So I'm coming up on a big anniversary. On November 17th, 2010, I moved to Provincetown. Uh, bef <laughs> but before that, the bigger anniversary was 10 years ago. And there was a day in December that I lost my job, my relationship, my friends, my sense of self, my self-respect, my dignity, my hope, my future. And I didn't know if I wanted to stay or if I wanted to go from this earth. And I spent a long time thinking about that. And um, I should say that this suicidal person was a therapist. And so I knew a lot about coping skills and what I should do with myself. Um, but what I didn't know is that once you remove the idea of suicide as an escape fantasy, life gets really fucking hard because that option doesn't exist anymore. So I didn't know what it would be like when my head turned to fish food, but it did, and I was in particles, and I was a mess, and I couldn't work, and I couldn't talk, and I some days didn't trust myself to drive. Um, I couldn't see people. I couldn't go places in Boston. Um, and I, throughout that year, the beginning of 2010, I started to get a little better and do a lot of work on myself. Um, and I got strong enough that I felt safe driving down to P-Town by myself. And I came, and it was a Thursday night, and I'm going to break my anonymity and say that I went to an Al-Anon meeting. And I looked around at these people and thought, they have something that I want. And, um, and it might just be this program, and it might be these 12 steps, but it also might be Provincetown. And... Um, I wasn't working and I had no prospect of being able to work, um, so I wasn't really spending a lot of money. So I used to drive back and forth to P-Town on Thursday nights just to go to those meetings. And I'm a shy person, not as much in P-Town as I was before, but I wouldn't talk to anybody. I'd go from 5.30 to 6.30, go to Heron Cove, and then go home. And so one night I felt like maybe I can afford to stay in a hotel for the night, but I don't want to go out to dinner. So I went to Stop and Shop to buy something to eat, and I saw on the bulletin board a winter rentals and living in Boston and only ever having an apartment in Boston, I didn't know seasonal life. And I saw rentals in Provincetown for $400. Like I, as, a, as a Bostonian who craved P-Town, I had no fucking idea you could live in P-Town for $400. Like even I can afford that, you know? 
and is this possible and is this crazy and am I well enough to come here on my own? And um, I called my most sensible, reasonable friend, my best friend, who had really struggled watching me this year and was really upset that I wasn't figuring out how to work, but I really like couldn't put it together. And I just assumed I would call her and she would say, no fucking way. And I called her and I just heard in her voice that she realized this year that I may have died. And um, she said, if that's what you want, make it happen, do this. So I made appointments, I looked up on Craigslist all these places in P-Town and I made appointments on this one Thursday to go. And um, I saw the shittiest places in Provincetown. <laughs> and so, like, I had, again, not knowing seasonal life, I didn't understand why somebody showed me a winter rental that had like 17 beds and no couch. I'm like, what is this? I don't understand this place. <laughs> And it wasn't close to Commercial Street, and I didn't know. And I'm like, <laughs> would I stay for this, you know? And then I went to this studio that had, like, a couch bed table scenario <laughs> behind the AIDS support group. And I'm like, what? Like, this is such a cage. Could I live here? Is this, like, what am I doing? And I just, like, this whole time period from December 2009 till now, this is November 2010 that I'm looking you know, I was just doing all this seeking and all this searching and waiting, like assigning. I'm like, I will go to Kripalu. I will go wherever. If you can put on my date book when I can have a spiritual awakening, I promise I'll show up for it. And it just wasn't happening. And so I'm here this day and I'm like listening to my gut. And my gut knows I can't live in either of these two places. So maybe I'm not supposed to live in Provincetown. I go to the Al-Anon meeting at 5.30, tentatively say hi to somebody who is my closest friend in town. And um, now... And I went to Herring Cove, and um, I didn't believe in God, but I thought, if I'm supposed to live here, please something help me, something show me a sign. And so I'm sitting at the beach, and all of a sudden a seal pops up. I'm from Massachusetts, I've been to the beach before, but I had no idea seals were in <laughs> the Cape. I had no idea. And so I see this, and I think, holy shit, oh my god, like I, like maybe I do believe, and I start running, and if you're looking at me, you know I don't do a lot of running, I'm running down the beach, and there's these two kids, I'll never forget, I'm a smart person, but they had on Harvard sweatshirts, and I'm screaming at them, oh my god, there's a seal, there's a seal in the water, oh my god, I'm gonna move to Provincetown, and so I get in my car and I go to the next meeting I have. I have one more meeting to look at an apartment. And as I crossed the threshold of that apartment, I cried and asked for the paperwork to sign it. I think I would have said yes to anything at the time. It happened to be the most beautiful place I've ever lived. I'm so grateful for that. I had no idea where I was going. I didn't know I liked myself enough to give myself Provincetown. I'm so happy to live here. My life is completely different. And I'm so grateful that I stayed. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Vanessa Vardabedian and William Mullen with theme music and editing by Jay Hagenbuckle. Find your next opportunity to join us in person by following us on Facebook and be sure to subscribe to this podcast for more stories. Remember, tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live. <laughs> <laughs>